You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show recording live here in downtown Batuta. Just Clancy Overall again this week. Errol Parker is still stuck at home, a bit sick. Doing all right, though, we believe. But you can never be too careful in these uncertain times. Today's guests are two people that we've been wanting to speak to for a while, and we thought, what better time than now? While the whole world is, well, at least the whole country is obsessed with swimming, the Olympics have been exhilarating. We A lot of people thought they shouldn't go ahead, and they probably shouldn't have. But we did clean up in the gold medals. Our girls over there, the Australian Dolphins, just sensational form. Uh, it was Titmus in July. It was the, it was one, one, one expression that was getting around the office. And, uh, and and now, I thought, what about a time than now to interview today's guests, Paul de Gelder and Julia Wheeler, who take swimming to, to another level, much, much further below the surface. Uh, we've got Julia Wheeler, who is a free diver. You've probably heard of uh, what free divers do. She is half woman, half mermaid, walks on the bottom of the ocean for fun. And we've got Paul de Gelder, who is half man, half machine. He also has a lot of fun in the water. And sometimes he doesn't have a lot of fun in the water as a Navy clearance diver. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Pleasure, mate. Paul, you're coming to us live from LA. Julia coming to us live from uh, the Northern Rivers. Uh, How did you two find each other? Obviously, I, I should mention, I discovered you guys through your podcast, The Dirt Down Under, where you talk about uh, all kinds of things, the ocean and your amazing lives. Uh, how, how did you two find each other? Me? You want me to? Yeah, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, how, it was true. I was actually dating Miss Delaware from the Miss USA pageant. And, well, it was probably more than dating because she moved to Sydney to live with me. And somehow her and Julia became friends. And then my super hot girlfriend started turning up at my house with this other super hot chick. And <laughs> and then we bro- I broke up with one, one of the super hot chick. And uh, me and Julia, like, kind of stayed in touch, but not really. Like, we had... I know we had um, a Sorry, sorry. J- just to clarify, Paul didn't break up with the other super hot chick to then hook up with me. Yeah. He broke up with no, me because no, they broke no. up. So I just want to clarify yeah, yeah. that. It did then, sound like yeah, that. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then Paul, no, Paul me. ignored me anyway. <laughs> when I first met Paul, he was pretty grumpy. So I was like, okay, bro. That's because I was <laughs> living with my the other pretty girl and she turned into a nightmare back then. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. You see, this is what happens when we do our podcast. I start taking tangents, and I need Julia to start reeling me back in. Um, I got I got too many stories, and so I just, you know, forks in the road. It's like that choose-your-own-adventure book. Yeah, yeah. Except yeah. I'm, across, I'm across all your stories, Paul. I mean, I don't know if we'll have time today to venture into your early beginnings in uh, – Australia's burgeoning hip hop scene as a young at yeah. risk youth. Yeah, open for Snoop Dogg. Can you believe it? I yeah. couldn't believe it. Open for like, Snoop Dogg. Yeah, that's. Yeah. A, um, but I'll just um, I'll just go back to that quickly. Paul and I met seven years ago, and then we didn't. Uh, we kind of stayed in touch a little bit, and mm-hmm. then about three months ago, we both got invited to a private dinner for a new restaurant, a vegan restaurant that's opening called um, Flav, and we reconnected there, and it was just like 
I don't know, we, we, we just bounce. And I said, hey, I want to do an interview with you about Seaspiracy because Paul's in Seaspiracy. And then it kind of just evolved and I'm like, you know what, you're awesome. We really work well together. We have a similar sense of humour. And we just bounce. And I just said, hey, do you just want to do 11 episodes? And then I invented the name of the show and Paul's like, yeah, let's do this and do this. And we kind of collaborated and, and just did it. And that's how we reconnected again. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Like it's a lot of fun and it's all for a good cause. So yeah, that was way better than mine. Way better. But you were good. You did good, Paul. You did, you did good. You, you no, did no. manage to mention that you were dating Miss Delaware. That's, that's, that's this is important. <laughs> now uh, for Australians who uh, aren't aware of the work you two do or haven't watched, of course, some of the documentaries you've been involved in, both of you, uh, Julia and Paul, they might know you, Paul, through the headlines, obviously, uh, from many years ago when you were involved in an interaction with a shark in Woolloomooloo, which is, yep. I mentioned before, your half man, half machine that has resulted in you having two steel limbs, but it hasn't stopped you from doing what you love, which is getting underwater. Yeah. Yeah. I took it to another extreme too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I want to get into all of that and, and how you found yourself in that particular part of the of the Australian military. But first, Julia, I want to talk to you about free diving. Sure. We mentioned before, you know, we've we've got a lot of amazing swimmers in this country, as we've just learned over the last week in the Tokyo Olympics. You kind of uh, halfway between Paul and our and our girls in the, in the Olympic pool in that you don't use any gear, but you do swim as far below the surface as you can. Um, yeah. To tell us how you get into that um, amazing subculture. I think growing up in West Australia, I had, you know, I had an incredible opportunity to grow up around the ocean. Um, my dad loved the ocean and every morning he would take me into the sea and it just kind of eventuated that I could never get out to where he was because the waves were so big. So I had to get a little bit strategic and I used to dive down and hold the ocean floor and kind of look up and wait until the waves rolled over me. And that kind of just evolved this this natural kind of ability or I guess curiosity to explore that breath hold from being really, really little. So I was really, really comfortable in the water. And then I also trained by an ex-Olympian, uh, Lynn McKenzie. So I was a competitive swimmer through school. I swam to Rottnest Island a couple of times in open water. So I kind of naturally just loved being in the ocean, underwater, down below the surface. And then long story short, I just kept kind of evolving that technique to the point where I represented Australia in the World Free, uh, Free Diving Championships in 2017. And I just progressed to become a 50-metre diver with a four-and-a-half-minute breath hold. And I learned about the mammalian dive reflex and bradycardia and certain evolutionary adaptations that we have as human beings that allow us to connect back to the ocean and reduce our heart rate and therefore maintain a longer dive time underwater. And with that, you know, you can explore so many different corners of the world you can communicate with whales you can dive with sharks you can explore reefs caribbean honduras the bahamas you can yeah it's just it's such a cool thing to do so that's that in a in a, in a short form that's um that's kind of i guess where it came from now you you free diving is something that you can stumble into with you know coaches and the like as you did and you can compete but it actually is something that's obviously existed since time began in a lot of indigenous communities around the world. Where have you seen free diving in its most kind of, you know, natural element? Like what what cultures would you say have been doing this with or without 
you know, official techniques that you've uh, you've just explained? Yeah, so I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the Solomon Islands yep. in Morova Lagoon in a village called Kavalavata, and that village was full of, you know, no electricity, no running water, just the fresh water from the mountain. And every day we'd go, we'd go hunting, we'd go spearfishing because, you know, you need to spearfish to feed the village and they would make hand, they would make spears out of wood, like these, these crazy, awesome, but simple handmade spears. And we would go out and just these guys would just disappear to 40 metres. They'd just bomb down and they'd be gone and yeah, you kind of, in a way, what I learned from that experience was to be be a hunter because mm. I was hungry. And here in the Western world, you know, you go out and you go spearfishing. It's, I don't really, I don't do it anymore. I don't, enjoy, mm. I don't enjoy it. And I've actually cut down my fish consumption by probably the majority of it. I don't really eat fish anymore. But back to the Solomon Islands, working with a tribe. They certainly do eat fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, but, yeah, they eat fish because they have to. So you get this kind of predatory feeling like I'm really hungry, I need to go, I need to go and eat, I need to catch my fish. So that combined like f- feeling hungry and then you kind of push yourself a little bit more when you're underwater, when you're actually hunting. So it was really amazing to see that with those guys and see their abilities and they could hold their breath for so long. And then you've got a tribe or a culture in Indonesia called the Bajalau and they live underwater essentially. I think they can see 30% better than we can underwater. So there's a few cultures around the world. Then there's the Japanese pearl divers who are incredible. But yeah, I think for me it was definitely the Solomon Islands and living yeah. with with that with that tribe and, and fishing and hunting with them and seeing how free diving really serviced their way of life and allowed them to survive and thrive by them tapping into those evolutionary adaptations. As I was saying, the mammalian dive reflex and actively putting in it putting it into play for their own survival. So yeah, pretty rad. So you know you've obviously that, that sounds like a very natural pathway to to doing that, you know, starting from WA and in swimming with your old man and finding different techniques and, and, and keeping underwater and, and, and just a love for it. I, I kind of want to talk to you now, Paul, about how you found yourself that far underwater actually wasn't through, uh, you know, the love of the ocean initially. It came from trying to avoid prison by the sounds of things. <laughs> An at-risk youth of uh, uh, initially from Canberra. You were running in a few uh, rough crowds, I guess you could say. I mentioned earlier Aussie hip-hop uh, in its early infantile stages. Were you given the option by a judge to join the army or stay at Her Majesty's Hotel, or did you make that decision yourself before you were given that option? No, that was my younger brother, actually. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually grew up swimming in the pool, yeah. uh, state swimming. My dad was a swimming coach and a cop. Uh, so I've been swimming since I was you know, two years old, really. But we moved away from Melbourne to uh, Mornington Peninsula to live in Canberra. And not a lot going on in Canberra in the late 80s, early 90s. And so as young, adventurous teens, we, we went out and found our own fun. And swimming just wasn't that exciting anymore after about 15. So I discovered smoking and drinking and girls and thought that was much more fun. And I'll embrace this. Uh, but I ended up just before my, uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened in between uh, along the way, getting kicked out of home, flunking high school, all that sort of stuff. But uh, I got jumped by 20 guys at a party in Deakin 
And so I just, I, I decided that I had to remove myself from this environment that I've become a product of before I was dead or in jail. So uh, I moved to Bris- Brisbane, mm-hmm. decided to go up to old Bris Vegas where my friend Matt had a job waiting for me behind a bar in a strip club. And pretty wild I town back a, then. Pretty wild town. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, the gig and euphoria. Was it euphoria? But yeah, working at Santa Fe Gold, became a rapper. Uh, not a lot of money in white rappers in Australia in 1998 though. Uh, so... <laughs> Ended up making the hard decision to join the army, following my younger brothers in. They were both in artillery. And they said, don't join infantry. It's too hard. You won't make it. So I joined infantry the next day and yep. <laughs> did that for a while. Did some incredible things. You know, deployed with the UN to East Timor in 2002. Got to do incredible training courses, uh, but ultimately got bored and a little sick of being dirty and smelly and either boiling hot or freezing cold out in the bush. So I thought uh, I'd try something else. Decided to, uh, well, I heard about these, you know, special dudes called the clearance divers and thought I'd give that a crack. And uh, thankfully, you know, all those years of swimming uh, had forged me into a, a pretty decent athlete with pretty good cardiovascular skills and good at running and push-ups and chin-ups and all that sort of stuff from the army. So ended up passing the clearance diver selection and the the 47 week training course and uh, discovered my my dream job up to a certain point. Now, I've listened to your podcast and I've heard you explain all of this in in, in a lot greater detail, but there was one thing that kind of haunted me was uh, you you explaining how, I'm not sure if it was while you were, uh, I guess, trying to get into the Navy clearance divers or when you were already there, but you the, the, the six-hour swim across Sydney Harbour on your back with linked arms. Can you explain that, please? That sounds pretty pretty grim. Yeah, yeah, and that's not even day one or two. That's, I think, that's like day three or four. So you're already totally exhausted. You've been busting your hump for the previous couple of days. And this is the, this is the selection process to get into the Navy clearance divers. So... They're really just trying to weed out the people that either can't do the job uh, physical-wise or don't want to be there enough to put up with this punishment. And one of the tasks is for everyone to jump into Sydney Harbour uh, at Mossman, at the Navy Dive School, which is right by Balmoral. Uh, you got your overalls on and a pair of fins and you all link arms. And on your back, as one, you fin with just your legs all the way to Manly Beach. Uh, this is like 11 p.m. as well, so it's pitch black. It's kind of freaky. And then you get a, a minute or two to stretch up, have a quick drink of water. Then you've got to fin all the way back to uh, Balmoral again. So five or six hours, not a lot of fun. Uh, for the rest of the selection process, if you get any sleep, you wake up kicking the bunk or the roof in top of you because your natural default after that is just to kick nonstop. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a little bit of what you had to go through. He loves it. Yep, you love it. Intense. He does. It, it, you love the he intensity. He loves being punished. <laughs> <laughs> he just I is do. like, oh, may I, I might die if I do this. I mean, guys, sign me up. Yeah. How can and I that's get why my, death? Yeah. I, I don't know who told Discovery Channel that, but they seem to know as well. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you all, um, obviously, as, you know, surfers – quite often fishermen, 
anyone who has that much to do with the water by proxy tend to become conservationists to a degree as well, which is kind of what your 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 podcast Dirt Down Under is about. But you know, I would say, Paul, you have much less reason to care about sea life than most. It's very noble for you to still love a lot of the animals in the ocean after what they did to you. Can you explain uh, that story to us as well? I mean, it's it's been you know it's been documented heavily, but I um, sorry, I, I don't think I would have the same relationship with sharks having gone through what you went through. Yeah, and tell us oh. about the time you put the blood, you jumped into your own blood, didn't you? You filled, you filled the water with blood and jumped into it, surrounded by sharks as well. Yeah. You should add that part yeah. to this story, please. It's crazy. Uh, I don't know how I can tie that all in together, but getting eaten by the shark, the not blaming it, and still <laughs> swimming with sharks with my own blood. Jeez. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so, did you want me to touch on the getting eaten or the yeah, why? Yeah, tell, tell uh, me, tell me about how you became half man, half machine. All right. So, February two thousand and nine, me and three of my teammates from the Navy Clearance Divers are testing unmanned video and sonar for the R and D department of the military, and I'm in the water pretending to be an attack swimmer. The scientists are trying to detect me with this new equipment. I'm on the surface on my back in a black wetsuit, pair of black fins, looking all the world to like an injured seal, just maybe sunning himself on Sydney Harbour in Woolloomooloo. And so obviously their nickname for us in my realm is Shark Biscuits. And so a shark decided I was a tasty biscuit treat and decided to eat me. Pretty shit day at work, I gotta be honest. It hurt a lot and I nearly died and it ripped ripped out my hamstring of my right leg, ripped off my right hand, and I swam back to the safety boat through a pool of my own blood where I nearly died. Fortunately, my friends kept me alive. Uh, One of them had to stick his hand inside my leg and pinch close an artery. And God bless everyone out there who donates blood because I went through 300 donations of blood. That's 150 liters. And because everything came into play, and I was very fortunate. I survived, but I lost the uh, remainder of my right leg, unfortunately. Hopping sucks. But I survived. I ended up deciding that I was going to go back to work as a Navy clearance diver, even though the Navy decided, I don't think they believed that that was possible. Uh, so I showed them it was. And I didn't ever blame the shark because. Yep. Basically, I chose a dangerous life. I was jumping out of aircraft. I was shooting guns. I was playing with bombs and explosives underwater. I, I rode a big black Italian sports bike. Like I, I, I chose a dangerous path. And you can't get upset when something goes wrong if you've chosen that path. So I really just accepted it as, you know, that's, you know, at least I got a good story out of this. And, you know, a shark attack story gets you a lot of free beer at the pub. So you got to look at the positives. <laughs> Did you find you were maybe even living harder after, uh, you know, you kind of re- survived that extremely hairy, you know, situation on the job? Or, or, was, or was that channeled back into diving? Everything about life was harder. Every yep. single little bit from emotions to mentality to physicality. And so... Uh, I just had to put in the work. I just had to be harder than the situation that I was in. And I put all of that, you know, even fear 
being a powerful motivator, I, I put everything into trying to prove to the Navy that I could still do my job in some semblance, if not as an operational clearance diver that can deploy to war, then at least as an instructor at the dive school so that I could carry on and do this job that I love. Turns out I don't love instructing. And so <laughs> I did that for a couple of years and then bailed on that because I'd found a, another outlet through writing books, through public speaking and dabbling in a little bit of television, which I, I really enjoyed as well. So I left the, uh, the 70, 80 hour weeks behind at the dive school and funnily enough, confronted my only other biggest fear besides sharks, public speaking. <laughs> well, there's plenty more work there than there is, uh, I guess, underwater. And Julia, you, uh, you've you worked in, in a similar space, come from diving into uh, conservation, and you, uh, you've got something coming out in the near future as well in, 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 the, in the shape of a documentary, I believe. Yeah, no, I've been developing a four-part documentary series for the last seven years, and season one is due to come out really, really soon like really soon in the next kind of month or so, I think, I believe, which is really exciting. And that was a series that took me to Africa and I worked in Madagascar and Gabon and looked at the way that ecosystems or world governments are supporting the coexistence between ecosystems and the human race. So, you know, it's it, it was a great, great thing to do and really inspiring, especially going to Gabon, which is a beautiful country on the west coast of Africa, which is, it's got, they've got about 10,000 species of trees. They've still got 80% forest cover. They have the beautiful elusive forest elephants that live there and act as these gorgeous forest gardeners or um, where, you know, they kind of eat the trees, they germinate the seeds in their stomach and then they poop out these beautiful little poo parcels that more trees grow out of in short form. So Best fertiliser in the world. Yeah, exactly. So it was really quite amazing and I got to see western lowland gorillas and the mandrills, the leatherback turtles nest there as well. They travel thousands of kilometres every year to relay their eggs or lay their eggs on the um, on the beaches they were born. So, yeah, it's, it's really cool and I'm excited for that series to come out and to jump into another season and also um yeah hopefully like well yeah we're definitely going to do another season of the dirt down under so at least 20 more what i what i love about the dirt down under is you know as you describe yourselves you're tackling the stigma surrounding conservation and uh you know loving animals loving nature and it's 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 a great conversation between you two because there is this obviously love for even the most dangerous as we've learned with paul friends of ours that we, 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 we have to coexist with, but also it's not, you know, your uh, stigmatized tree hugger shit, you know what I mean? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, we have questions too, mate. We don't, <laughs> like, we don't pretend to know all the answers. Like, we try and live our best lives like everyone else is doing as well, but we're not mm. scientists. We don't have all the answers. We're not experts. And so mm. we're going to ask the tough questions that I feel like both of us feel like everyone wants to know. Because, like, for example, Seaspiracy, they got a mm -hmm. lot of flack for what they you know, came out with and some of the information. And we were like, yeah, yeah, I, we want answers for this too. So let's go ask Ali and get these answers. Uh, and so I think that's why people will probably enjoy it more than just uh, a couple of people promoting conservation. Like, we'll get the answers and we'll ask the tough questions. Yeah. It's not fear-mongering either. No. We'll ask no, anything. No, unless we're 
Well, like, unless we're joking. We're like, I, I think half the show is basically Me either laughing. one of us trying to stop laughing. Mostly yeah. Julia. Yeah. No. I, yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I laugh a lot and it's actually quite shocking doing the show with Paul because we we don't prepare for the episode together until about five minutes before we go on air or before we record because we both have our own takes on things and we both like to research our own things and we both like to look into and observe in our own observe in our own ways. So it's really fun when we, you know, we have a guest ready to go on and they're coming in in five minutes into studio. Paul rocks up like, you know, whenever he rocks up. And um, <laughs> whenever he feels like Like 30 like seconds it, before, yeah, so scribbles some up, notes. He literally goes on his, you know, he pre- he's, he's like, yeah, I did no research. And then he'll like do a quick look. And then I'll say, okay, right. Well, this is this is kind of the, the formatting of, of where I want to take the conversation because usually I'll pull the conversation back in. And then, yeah, so we, anyway, we just, we, we don't know what the other person's going to ask. And then it's really, it is quite shocking with the things that Paul will come, will come up with. And I'm always <laughs> caught off guard and I'm like, shit, like I need to pull this back in, but I'm, I'm laughing and I'm losing my train of thought. And then the guest <laughs> is always laughing or, you know, but then when we get quite serious, Paul and I do these full, like, you know, eye contact looking at each other, kind of trying to work out. It's kind of a bit of a chess game as well, like who's got the next move, what's the next question. So there's a bit of a game involved. There's a lot of like, yeah. obviously we rip especially each other. When, especially when we have guests coming on start talking about shrinking penises. Yeah. Oh, I was just about I to ask, plastic that. plastic shrinks penises. Yeah. I was just yeah. about to ask yeah, the next question. Yeah, I didn't tell him anything about that when he turned up to <laughs> the episode. So that was a good one, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> Tell us, just, just touch on that. Tell us about why plastic shrinks penises and what did you learn? Phthalates. <laughs> also very similar to phalanxes, which is like a penis object. Phthalates ruin phalluses. Bisphenols. Bisphenols and phthalates. They're bad. And, um, yeah, Paul's baby divers, he needs them to... Swim, right? You go, Paul. You give yeah. us the debrief. On they're basically they're ba- the the chemicals chemicals are basically mimicking estrogenic hormones and blocking male uh, hormone receptors, therefore promoting estrogen production, which then is basically turning us into females and shrinking <laughs> our doodles into clitoris. <laughs> is that is that the plural for clitoris? Clitoris. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. So it yeah, it's it's quite terrifying. Um, I've been trying to use as little plastic as possible because we've all been doing it for forty years. Well, mm-hmm. no, not well. I've been doing it for forty years, uh, but we've all been doing it our whole lives. And most of our lives, there wasn't even any sort of study into BPAs and the phthalates and all that sort of stuff. We were using the super toxic stuff our whole lives. It's only yeah. now that we're not using that, like lead paint, things like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's time that we all start moving away from using plastics as much as possible and, and keep our little Johnsons as Mr. Big Johnsons. <laughs> well, that is, um, that's one way to communicate that to the world's... Uh Men, you know, you could talk about banning the plastic bag to save the turtles, or you could talk about banning the plastic bag to save your penis. Yeah, um, save your own turtles. Which one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, use plastic, shrink your penis. Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably um, a better slogan. That was Paul's uh, slogan. For, 
That's, that's your that's your slogan, Paul. Now, oh, you Paul, should hear the you... slogan about the Daintree rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> that was so Go good. On, then. Go on then. <laughs> heard, it, what, wait, heard it was beautiful, not worth dying for. Yeah. Dude, do you know how many deadly things live in the Daintree rainforest? Yeah, heaps. Yeah. Oh, my starting, Lord. And, starting with the cassowary. And people and the, want the, to the move in there. Like they're, they're literally cutting down the Daintree so people can go and live in there and set up houses and, and hotels and stuff like that. Who wants to go to a hotel surrounded by taipans, death adders, funnel web spiders, cassowaries that kick your face off. Like, this is, a, this is the forest of death. Mm. They need to it's rename pretty- it and rebrand it. That'll keep everyone out. Yeah, the forest of death. I mean, and just, just driving through there in itself is dangerous. If they grate the roads and it's rained, you, good luck getting a yeah. four-wheel drive up Yeah, you get out and try and fix your tire, get it in my crocodile. And leeches. Yeah, yeah le- the leeches and monsters up there too. So, Paul, can you explain to me, I mean – Julia, it kind of makes sense, you know, with your background, you know, and all the travel you, you kind of did, diving and, and all the all the kind of cultures you kind of were immersed with and, and you know, their, their love of the land and their love of the ocean. Paul, how did you, as someone who was basically, you know, in the military, you know, you're not, you're not so much talking about that kind of stuff in the military. You're more about man versus, you know, man let's, versus the world. Let's blow some shit up. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, mate, I, I really didn't care about much of that stuff. Like, I was pretty much like everyone. Maybe I'd have a recycling bin, maybe. Yep. But after my shark attack, because it was so big in the media around Australia, around the world, every time there was another shark interaction, the media would come to me to give an opinion. And so I, I didn't know anything about sharks. I just thought if we killed them, then we'd be awesome and safe to swim in the ocean. And so I didn't want to say that because I knew that was must be wrong. And so out of my desire to not look like a dumbass, I started doing research. And that was, even as you know, someone who even as someone who was now missing two limbs, you were a, a big enough man to try and understand who did it to you. Oh, mate! Like I said, I, I never blamed the shark. I like I chose yep. a dangerous path. We all knew that there were bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. I just had to be the sacrificial lamb, I guess. But. No, especially now, I, I can't even, like, I wouldn't even change it. It's it's just something that happened. Sure, it was crap. It was a really hard time. I got some really good stories out of it. And what is life if not a series of amazing stories? And mm. now I get to live this incredible life where I travel the world, getting paid to uh, go swimming and having adventures and hang out with awesome people like Julia, standing on stage and inspiring people. So, you know, mate, that. Like some of the worst things that ever happened to us in our lives will give us the best opportunities. But I, I just saw it as, a, a, in a sense, a transfer of service from the military where mm-hmm. our job is to stand up for and protect those that can't, st- can't stand up and protect themselves. So now I'm speaking up for this animal that doesn't have a voice and yet humans are slaughtering in the hundreds of millions. And so through doing that all around the world, and having experiences like jumping, you know, parachuting out of a plane 15,000 feet directly into the ocean, drifting through the ocean for two days, two nights, no food, no water, surrounded by sharks and having to make it to land. And then, you know, washing up on this beach in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific and it's covered in trash. So 
the whole environmental conservation side of it and then going to work with Damien Manda with his International Anti-Poaching Foundation in Africa, like it all tied together to make me realize that we as a human species are destroying our home and we need to be woken up and there are some incredible people out there doing amazing things to try and achieve that but maybe they need a bigger platform maybe they need a bit of help to get their message out to the world like i had talking about sharks and so that's where uh the dirt down under was birthed from mine and julia's desire to give these people uh, more of a platform to teach the world about the dire circumstances we're in have a conversation about it and actually talk about some solutions as well Julia, you mentioned before, you know, it's not all doom and gloom when you're having these conversations. You know, you saw that, you know, sorry, what was the country in in, in West Africa? Gabon. Gabon, where, you know, they have made it work and they have been able to, you know, find this balance between, uh, you know, humans and, and nature. Are there any other stories out there that you've seen like this where, you know, actually, oh, okay, now people are having the right conversations, people have got the right idea? I think the main one so far has been for my first-hand experience, has definitely been Gabon. But, yeah, I think there is an undercurrent of awareness that's now churning through, you know, Mm -hmm. nature, the planet, that we can turn this around, we can change Mm -hmm. this. And it really comes down to choice. So, you know, the scientists tell us that global warming is real. We've seen, we know that half of, well, the majority of us, or Few of us know that half of the world's rainforests have been cut down. But, you know, I think the people are starting to really talk and starting to circulate this knowledge. And I think human movement, especially against governments, um, <laughs> seems to be on the forefront of, of bringing that, that change, which is really inspiring. And I think over the coming years, and, and I hope we continue to see people coming together and making these changes or pushing the government to do the right thing so yeah look i'm looking forward to getting out there and 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 telling more stories there's there's so many of them but yeah for me at the moment my my main kind of story that i need to share is about the vision that a a prime minister was given by a group of conservationists and that prime minister then realised, you know, I can do something about it. And in turn, he revoked thousands of hectares of logging permits and creating and created 13 national parks. And that's, What country was that's this? Gabon. That's the country in Africa. Yeah, right. So it's like, if he can do that, then, you know, what can we do here? And then I was part of the removal of the Equinor gas um, an oil exploration permit that was going to be issued in the Great Australian Bight three or four years ago. And that in itself was a, a huge m- movement of Australians who got together and said, no, Equinor, you need to leave. We don't want you drilling in the Great Australian yeah. Bight. And then in turn... Everyone everyone learnt that you don't, you don't fire up surface. No, but the other thing uh. is what actually helped push that across the line was the unity between the two countries because Equinor started to protest as well, saying, get yeah. out of Australia. And, mm. you know, so there's that, that there is the power to make change and there are lots of stories and, you know, it's just really about coming together and, and implementing that and getting it done and getting on with it. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think back, you know, two years ago, Woolworths were, uh, you know, there was a plastic bag every 
split second was leaving a Woolworths and Coles yeah. in, in Australia. And, and you, you know, that's kind of been a worldwide movement in the sense that you, just last year they saw the turtles hatching on Mumbai Beach for the first time in 40 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? That the, the wheels are in motion in, in many aspects. I mean, there's a lot less plastic on the earth. or co- well, There's a lot less unfortunately, plastic. Unfortunately, they've been replaced with masks now. Yes, of course. Of course. Please, where have you been seeing this? Uh, I, I saw a whole bunch of um, stuff online talking about how many billions of tons of masks have been uh, put out into the ocean, circulating around the um, Great Pacific garbage patch. And just, every, I, I don't know about you, man, I see them everywhere. I, I've yeah. got a beach across the street that I go and clean up on a regular basis. And I would say the majority of trash that I get is straws, cigarette butts, and masks. Cigarette butts are still in the mix. I thought that would yeah. get phased out before plastic bags. Look, it comes down to people being really, really, really lazy, like incredibly mm-hmm. lazy. Don't use a disposable mask. Go and buy a mask and get some filters mm-hmm. or just take the initiative. And plastic mm-hmm. bags, people are lazy. Bring your own bag. Balance your, your, your groceries. Use a cardboard box when you get to the end of the checkout instead of grabbing a Don't plastic bag. Don't let your bag. penis shrink. Don't let your penis yep. shrink. Exactly. I can't speak on my personal behalf. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it comes down to being lazy, definitely. I, that's what I reckon mm-hmm. anyway. I, it's, it's disgusting. There's my, I can even see a mask on the floor over there and I'm at my friend's house and it's kind of gross. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So who have you had on the, on the podcast so far? We have had... Jimmy Halfcut, who mm-hmm. has the Halfcut Foundation, and he is an incredible human being who wears half a beard, and he wants to save the Daintree Rainforest in far north Queensland, which is being cut down and sold off to farmers. So that's that was cool. We've had him on. That was pretty awesome. We've had Kate Nelson, Plastic Free Mermaid. Paul was an episode as well. And then we also had Ali Tabritzi from Seaspiracy. And, yeah, we've got some pretty cool people coming up, actually, haven't we, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a bunch. So plenty, plenty more to come from Dirt Down Under. Yeah, we've got oh, eight. dude, so much more. Like really good ones too. Like Ocean Ramsey, who swum with the the biggest great white shark on the planet, uh, and then got beasted for it. So we talked to her about both sides of the coin. You know how, how much of an incredible uh, experience that was, but also dealing with the backlash. Yeah. Yeah. And then also we speak to the um, private family photographer for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, uh, Matt Porteous, and he comes on and, and talks to us about, you know, this this is a photographer who could do anything that he wants in the entire world. I think he was named, was it Paul Harper's Bizarre Photographer of the Year or something like that? Yep. Yeah, so this guy has got, you know, an open book of any anything he wants to do and he's chosen to start his own ocean conservation platform called Ocean Culture Life uh, whereby he's joining storytellers that are ocean associated from all over the globe and he's just the biggest sweetheart and you know really passionate really inspiring and he talks to us about how his life changed recently when he went to the Maldives and swam with tiger sharks and yeah it's it's insane and we also have Chris Hemsworth's uh, centre nutritionist Simon Hill he comes on board and that's pretty funny, Paul and him. Yep. Paul didn't tell me the questions he was going to ask Simon in that interview and I spent the majority of the time on the floor. Me and Simon are pretty good mates. Uh, I've, I've been on his podcast. We've known each other for a bunch of years, so we could get pretty intimate there. Um, yeah. Then we talked, to Sean, we talked to Sean O about um, him trying to shut down the environmental minister's plan to put 
the gas platforms off the coast Pep of Sydney. 11. Uh, yeah, so that was really enraging. I think that one really put our hair back. Mm, that comes out in two weeks when they're actually going to be – there's a campaign I think that they're running soon to do with uh, PEP11, which is the, the oil and gas permit that they want to put uh, – the petroleum exploration permit that they want to put between Sydney and Newcastle, that 4,500-kilometre yep. zone. And, yeah, Sean O is – he's the one that led – the fight for the bike campaign. Yep. So he was, you know, a common. He was a commentator for the World Surf League. I, I think he still does it, but he's the biggest legend. He's fantastic on on Instagram, Shauno eight eight eight. Anyway, he he yep. just happened to be in the neighbourhood and he came in and yeah. I mean, Paul and I, I think out of all of the the interviews we did, I don't know. I don't want to speak on your part on your behalf, Paul, but I think that was. I really learnt a lot like more than mm. any of the others to do with what's happening in Australia, what the government is doing with all the oil and gas money that's coming in and how naive I was to think that, you know, the, the oil and gas industry was paying for JobKeeper, <laughs> but it's not. So, yep. yeah, and it just it, that's a really fantastic, you know, if anybody wants some insight into the oil and gas industry, on a lighter note, but to feel quite and how corrupt our government is. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for speaking to us today, uh, you two. We've uh, we've learned a lot, learned a lot about you guys, and uh, and a lot more about what's to come from Dirt Down Under. Thank you for joining us, Paul and Julia, Mermaid in the Machine. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> Why didn't we think of that, Julia? Write it down. That's the next one, Paul. <laughs> That's the, the TV show. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Write it down, write it down. <laughs> Thanks so for joining, good. guys. Thank you. Cheers, mate.